So we're going to look at uh, Colossians again. We're still in chapter 1. And I just want to look at uh, basically verses 9 to 14. Okay, now, our Christian Bibles have two parts. The first part of the Bible is often called the Old Testament by Christians. Sometimes it's called the Hebrew Scriptures because it's written in Hebrew. It's also sometimes called the Jewish Scriptures because it's also the Scriptures of the Jewish faith. Okay? So that, and that first part of the Bible was written before Jesus came to the world and it largely follows the story of ancient Israel. The second part of the Bible, which Christians call the New Testament, uh, was written after Jesus came. So the New Testament begins with the stories of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the rest of the New Testament really reflects on who Jesus is and what all of that means for us and for the world. But we must not drive too big a wedge between those two parts of the Bible. Because the story of the Old Testament is actually continued into the New, and the arrival of Jesus is presented to us as the continuation and culmination of everything that's happened before in the Old Testament. Luke 24 tells us this, that Jesus opened the disciples' minds so that they could understand the Scriptures, and that meant the Old Testament then, because the New hadn't been written, Beginning with Moses and the Old Testament prophets, Jesus explained to the disciples, it says, what was said in all the scriptures about him, about Jesus. Okay? So it is one story, the Bible, with Jesus at the centre. Now, of course, yes, there are developments and new things and changes as the story develops. And the arrival of Jesus in particular... um, Uh, brings about some new things. But it is still part of the one big story of God and the world that stretches from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And Jesus is at the centre of it all. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote a number of letters in the New Testament, including Colossians, he said uh, that all the promises of God that were spoken in the Old Testament had now been kind of gathered up into the person of Jesus so that everything God has said before had been fulfilled in Jesus. So Paul said that, wrote this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. Every single one of the promises of God, he said, finds its yes in Christ. So what he means is everything God has ever said and promised is now completed and affirmed. It has its yes in Jesus. Okay? Now with that being so, it is very, one very important thing to realise when you read the Bible is this. When the New Testament talks about Jesus and explains what Jesus means for us, it does that using Old Testament words, Old Testament concepts, Old Testament themes and descriptions of under, and understandings and expectations and hopes. Because Jesus does not just appear out of nowhere. He continues and completes what the earlier Old Testament story had been saying. Now, I'm saying this because, take these verses in Colossians 1 as an example. Phrases here like Father, Spirit, Inheritance, Saints, Kingdom, Light, Wisdom, Knowledge, Rescue, Redemption, the Beloved Son, the Forgiveness of Sins, all of those phrases are drawn from the Old Testament. And if we understand that, we'll better understand what it's saying. Now, one of the most defining events in the Old Testament story was the Exodus. 
Um, the word exodus is a Greek word, uh, comes from a Greek word meaning a pathway out. Okay? In Hebrew, there's a very similar word, yatsar, which means to be brought out. Okay? Uh, and the, this Hebrew word yatsar in the Old Testament was often used to describe how God, in the Exodus story, brought the ancient Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, or out from their captivity, and into a new life as God's people. The Exodus was therefore about salvation or rescue and deliverance, being brought out, literally, from one very bad situation and transferred into a, a new and very good one with God. So, because the Israelites were trapped, uh, they were oppressed. This, this is relevant to Colossians, you'll find out in a minute. The Israelites were trapped, they were oppressed, they were under the ownership and dominion of a hostile power. But God saw them in their suffering, we're told, and in his love he came and rescued them. He overthrew the, the dominating power of Pharaoh and his kingdom that held them captive, and he delivered the suffering slaves, and he brought them out across the Red Sea, remember, and he took them into the freedom of a whole new life with him, a new and better kingdom, in other words. So exodus means God delivering them out of a life of darkness and death into what the Old Testament called an inheritance, which was a promised land that became their new home, but more than that, their new life, their new world with God. Okay? Now, interestingly, this fascinates me, this sort of thing, the Hebrew word yatsar, to bring out, which describes the exodus, can also mean to be born, as in a child being brought forth from its father's loins, as the Bible would sometimes put it, uh, or being brought forth from its mother's womb, and that adds a whole other layer of meaning to what was happening in the exodus. When God brought them out, it was also like it was the beginning of a new life. They were being born again as new people. Uh, so exodus, deliverance, rescue, salvation is, yes, it's about bringing people out of slavery, but in another deeper sense, it's about giving them birth to something completely new as God's children. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God. Now, another very important word that the Old Testament used to describe this was redemption. Now, you will see that word a lot in the Bible. Um, it, it was a very fitting word to use of the Exodus because redemption means someone paying for the freedom of a slave so that that slave is no longer a captive but can go free. You buy their freedom. So, you know, a slave is owned by someone. Uh, but someone else comes along, some wealthy person perhaps, and says, look, I'll, I'll pay for the slave to, to, to be released from your, your ownership. I'll pay the price. And then that person pays price and just says, you're free. You're not a slave anymore. That's what redemption meant. And God says that depicts, in another sense, how he redeemed the Israelites from slavery. It was like he had brought, bought their freedom. No longer were they under the ownership of, and dominion of Egypt in their case. Now they were free because God had redeemed them. Which is why in the generations that followed, they often called God their redeemer. Now, as I said, this, this exodus event in the Old Testament was one of arguably the most defining event in the whole Old Testament. Partly because it defined and displayed to everybody, the whole world, the kind of God that God is. 
God is merciful, he's just, when he sees wrong, he will do something. But he's a God who rescues. So it shouldn't be any surprise that the Exodus language becomes one of the most clear and common paradigms, one of the most prominent ways of describing what God has now done for the world through Jesus. If, as I've said, all the scriptures point to Jesus, then that huge story about Exodus and how God rescues the slaves becomes a pointer to actually what he would do for us all through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, have a look at Colossians 1, verses 12 and 14, because you'll now, hopefully it will now make sense why I'm saying what I'm saying. These verses are crammed full of Exodus language, Exodus memories, but they describe not the first Exodus of Israel from Egypt, but a new Exodus sort of rescue that God's done for all the world through his son Jesus. We give thanks, joyful thanks to the Father who has enabled, uh, the word is about having power to be able to do something, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance of his holy people who live in the light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us out into the kingdom uh, of the Son, his beloved Son, that's Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in those verses, dominion, rescue, redemption, share, inheritance, holy people, brought out, all of those words are from the Exodus story with its imagery of being brought out from one dark dominion uh, or, or power over us that was harming us and now we're brought into the light and the love and the power of God's kingdom, a place of light. Why does this matter? Because it helps, helps us understand what God has done for us in Jesus. Paul is saying that this is your story and my story too as Christians. Um, it shows our great need, just, just like the Israelites in slavery. You know, it shows what God has then done about it for us. It shows us what he's brought us into instead. Out of the power of darkness and of our sins, which are forgiven, it says, out of our slaveries, whatever they may be, that are holding us away from God and the life he means for us. And God brings us out through Jesus into a new kind of power for our lives, a new light, a new holiness, a new love through Jesus, in whom he says, you've got redemption as well. I've bought you. You're redeemed and set free. Because that's what that means, remember, redemption. It's like Jesus has paid the captor, the one holding us, a price to buy our freedom. And actually... The New Testament explains that the price Jesus gave for our freedom, yours and mine, was himself, his own life on the cross. So th think of it like this. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, you know, he was literally taken captive by all the darkness and sin of the world and physically nailed as a captive to a cross. It was like Jesus saying, take me captive instead. I'll be the price, I'll be nailed here so that they can all be set free and born into something new. You can pin me, Jesus was saying, to this cross instead. That's why Ephesians 1 says we have redemption, the price, through his blood. That, that's what his own life has been given for our freedom. I, I think C.S. Lewis depicted this so well in the Narnia story, if you know the Narnia stories, where King Aslan offers himself to die on this stone table 
And in the Narnia story, he's done that so that Edmund, and therefore all of Narnia, can be set free from the white witch's captivity. Now, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and he, he, he was using, that was a picture of the gospel. Um, C.S. Lewis said there's pictures of the gospel in so many of our stories, and I really believe that. So many films, so many books are, are on, are, have this story of, this idea of somebody loving us so much that they would sacrificially give themselves for us. Why does that resonate with human beings? I believe because it's something of God in us that we know that's the God we want and actually it is the God we have because that's what Jesus did for us. Um, so, you know, both in that Narnia story but much more the, in, a, in the greater gospel story, the, the real story of this universe, death and darkness knew, no, knew nothing of a deeper power that was happening at the cross. Jesus could be nailed to that cross thrown all the blame, all the sin, all the evil in the world, but actually he could take it and absorb it all, suffer its consequences, all the pain we cause, you and me as well, and all the nails we put through each other, metaphorically or literally, you know, when physical harm and other times, geez, all that was nailed to him, he could take it, bleed, die and be buried, and bury, bury our sin with him forever. That's for our forgiveness. He's taken that sin. Uh, Colossians will go on to speak as if uh, anything that was written against us, this is in chapter 2, has been nailed to the cross. Like God takes it off me and he says, it's pinned there now. It's not on you anymore. That's our forgiveness. Um, and yet, Jesus still has enough power to then get up in resurrection, walk out the tomb alive. That was the kind of twist that darkness, shall we say, hadn't seen coming. That it thought all of that evil and sin of the world would, would bury Jesus forever, the Son of God, but it didn't. His life was enough to buy our freedom for all of us, with plenty more left for him to then walk out in resurrection and lead us still over our Red Seas, you know, whatever they are, our barriers, our struggles and hurdles, our sins perhaps, our dead ends that we've walked down, but Jesus can help them walk through them and then beyond them in our life, out of them, into this new life with him. Okay? There are different types of slavery. Just one example, on one occasion, some people said to Jesus, we're not slaves of anyone. This is in, uh, I think, John's Gospel. And Jesus said this to them. And this, I think this is, he was just giving them one example. We think we're not slaves, but he says, look, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. I, in, in other words, I think what he was saying there was, look, we, become, we can all become slaves of our actions, you know, of our regrets, our mistakes, the things we've, the choices we've made, perhaps. And they can actually take so much hold of us that they begin to then dictate and shape our lives. And we might even get a point where we realise this is happening, you know, the things we've done that we shouldn't or whatever. Uh, and and we, we can even begin to realise what's happened and we can feel like, I can't move on from this. It, it, it's, it's, that's just it forever for me, you know, that's where I'm stuck. That defines me now, those mistakes I made or whatever. But Jesus went on to say this, but look, you know, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but he said, but, but if I, God's son, set you free, you will be free indeed. You really will be free. Jesus can take us out. That's just one example, he says, of a slavery that he sets us free from. 
But it's not just about our individual lives. The Old Testament exodus was not just about individual Israelites. It was also about big-scale dominions. It was about this system that the Pharaoh had built. It was about a way of controlling a people that played out on the scale of a whole community. So this good news of Jesus for the world now, it's the same as true for that. It's not just about myself, it is, it's about us as individuals, but it's not just about our individual slaveries, I don't believe. As a result, the, you know, when he sets us free from those, it then becomes about a new community, just like the first exodus, Christ's people with the church, and it's about us challenging and changing those big-scale slaveries, those bigger injustices, those systems that still exist in our world today that hold people captive or tell them they're worthless or tell them you're only worth this or that. You know, some are held captive in poverty in our world today, some in shame, some in ways that devalue the person or exhaust people of hope. I think Jesus also brings redemption to the world in in sense of rescuing us from those big-scale things. Colossians 2, again, will go on to say that through the cross, God has disarmed or, and, and sort of it, sort of, he's sort of shown up. He's made them look stupid. He's made a spectacle, it says, and triumphed over all those other kinds of power and authority and systems that rob the world of light and life and goodness. You know, all those things that say, oh, this is how it has to be. And we believe them sometimes. And then Jesus comes along and he says, look, I'm God and I'm going to die on the cross for you. Because I love you. So that you, we, the cross redeems us in that big worldwide sense too. Christ redeems the individual, but Christ redeems the world. Back in the old Exodus story, the, the new home, the new life that the Israelites were brought into was often referred to as their inheritance. Uh, and each person was allotted their place, their share. Didn't matter whether who you were, how important or how lit, not important you felt, you were given your place in that promised land, everyone the same. And God said they were going to be a holy people in that holy land. But look at Colossians now. Paul now carries that image over to us, to everyone who's found freedom in Christ. He says in verse 12, God has qualified or enabled us to share in the inheritance of the saints. That literally means the holy people uh, in his kingdom of light. So Paul is, again, he's bringing up memories of the old exodus. You know, I give you an inheritance and you're to be a holy people, he said to them. Paul says, God's done that for you as well in Jesus. We now live a new life in Christ. We are a new people belonging to a new kingdom, a new inheritance, if you like, a new kingdom of God, which God is building in the world. He is in, God has brought us into a kind of new promised land, really. Way back in Exodus 6, God said this to the Israelite slaves. He said, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of your oppressors, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, who brought you out from under your burdens. And I will bring you to the place I promised. I will give it to you as an inheritance, for I am the Lord. Now, God says the same thing to you and me 
and to our world, I think, for all people today because of Jesus, whether it's Jew or Gentile or anyone else. Through Jesus, I'll bring you out to a new place. So, as followers of Jesus, God invites you and me to be part of this new beginning, this promised land for the world. Paul uses the word saints or holy ones to describe us. The word holy is a word that describes God, of course, but it's, Paul says it can describe you as well now. In verses 9, and tw- 9 to 12, he prays certain things for the Christians in Colossae, that they will bear fruit, that they will grow in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that they will grow in the knowledge of God and in the power of God and in the joy or delight of the Lord. I don't know if when we read that you recognise that because the first thing I read this morning was Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 3 which described Jesus. Isaiah 11 was written several centuries before Jesus came and it said, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might or power, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord and he will rejoice. He will take find joy in the fear of the Lord. Paul is using those words now. I don't know if you've noticed that. The very same things that describe Jesus in Isaiah 11. Paul says, that's my prayer of what you will become now as Christians. For him, they were living in Colossae. I believe he would say exactly the same to us here in Fivehead today. So this is why I say the church should be a community of redemption. As we follow Jesus, we should be becoming more like him. That should be our prayer. We become a community of rescue, of justice for the needy, of hope for the captives, a community of new life growing in the world. That's our prayer. May God help us to be that. Because that is part of this great inheritance he's led us into. Like a new heavens and new earth, Isaiah describes it as, as as Isaiah 11 goes on. What has happened to you as a Christian? Who are you? Who are we? What are we as Christians and as a church? Paul says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May our lives reflect who we are in Jesus. Amen.